Hello and welcome to the Faculty Podcast, covering the latest breakthroughs, research, news and insight delivered by the world's leading academic and industry figures. This study contributes to the scholarship of homeschooled relationship. By examining parental investment in their children's education, this study shows effects of heterogeneity on the distribution of educational resources in middle-class families in contemporary India. The larger context of this study is the growing proportion of the global middle class. This category represents world's fastest growing consumer group. Homi Kuras, who is an economist based in Brookings in Washington, D.C., has estimated that people in this group who earn between $11 to $110 per day contribute to a total annual consumption of approximately $40 trillion. In 2016, approximately 3.2 billion people were recorded as middle class. In the latest report published in 2017, Kara suggests that this number will grow by 140 million annually. Notably, the 2010 OECD report on the emerging middle class in developing countries highlights that the global growth of the middle class is centered on Asia. As 88% of the next billion added to the economic group will be from various regions in Asian countries. Now moving on from this big picture to an everyday reality. It is crucial to highlight that the contemporary middle class has emerged from various historical contexts. As a result, it is defined variously and characterized differently across sociocultural settings. A vast pool of research in India, which is one of the largest middle class growth areas, reveals the extensive heterogeneity of the social group. In India, the growth of the new middle class is often linked to the IMF envisioned structural adjustment program adopted by the Indian state in the late 1980s. Following this, a number of economic restructuration plans benefited many social groups, resulting in the reconfiguration of the social composition of what might be construed as an advantaged group. The contemporary middle class in India, most scholars would agree, comprises of an old intergenerationally privileged, mostly upper caste, self-sufficient group of families, and a new, highly aspirational, upwardly mobile, and consumerist social group that benefited greatly from the expanded market economy and its labor demands. The latter group is further divided along the parameters of income levels, educational credentials of family members, main source of household income, and consumption patterns. Sometimes it represents the IT professionals who live in metropolitan cities, and other times it consists of the families who have a steady income but who struggle to secure their future financially. Despite internal variations, all socioeconomic sections of the Indian middle class invest heavily in their children's education. The nature of this investment has been discussed in the literature primarily regarding school choice. The majority of these investigations that explore the relationship between social class and education seldom explore the effects of heterogeneity of the middle class population and parental involvement in their children's education. In an attempt to redress this gap, I explored how varied social positioning within the middle class provide children in these families with differential access to valuable educational resources. 
I conducted interviews with parents in 53 families between December 2014 and December 2015 in Dehradun. Dehradun is the capital city of Uttarakhand state in northern India. The household income of the participant families ranged between 300,000 to 500,000 Indian rupees, which should be roughly around 4,490 to 7,484 US dollars. This income range places the participant families within the economic category of contemporary Indian middle class as suggested by Sridharan in 2011. Also, the parents who participated in this study identified themselves being in the middle of the social hierarchy. With regards to the arrangement of interviewing, while I proposed to interact with both parents, most interviews were conducted with mothers, some with fathers and mothers together. And on rare occasions, I spoke only with the father. I spoke with parents in their homes and each interview lasted for about 1.5 to two hours. These conversations were analyzed along with the material produced from informal conversations that I have had with parents and school teachers. Interactions with school teachers happened in two schools that were involved in the larger research project, where most participant families had enrolled their children. I also draw on the observations I made during parent-teacher meetings in these schools. Key themes that emerged from these materials were the narratives of migration from rural to urban areas, parents' aspiration for their children's future, educational strategies that parents adopted to provide their children with valuable educational resources, and their everyday engagement in their children's education. Each of these themes are discussed in detail in the article. Here, I will go through the major research findings. The first set of research findings are placed under the heading Migration, Middle Class, and the Construction of Social Mobility. All families I interacted with had migrated from rural areas, mostly from Garhwal Hills and only a few from non-hilly neighborhoods to Dehradun City. Besides migration, most male adults in these families had switched their occupation from farming to professional jobs. Fathers in most of these families were army officials, bankers, or teachers. Some were skilled laborers and worked as chefs in restaurants in metropolitan cities within India and overseas. And a few were in tourism and retail industry. Migration and occupational shift in the case of most participant families were interlinked. As both public and private sector industries began expanding, Dehradun became a career hub. Many people from neighboring hilly and rural areas moved to the city to seek employment opportunities. While many wished to migrate to Dehradun, only a few families were socially positioned to do so. Parents in the participant families, for example, mobilized their economic resources and social capital to diversify out of the agrarian system and to switch to mostly salaried vocations in Dehradun. This shift offered the participant families a position in the urban middle class social fabric, which means that not only were they economically well off, but they also performed a middle class lifestyle. It is important to note here that as parents moved away from traditional occupation of farming to salary jobs, intergenerational transfer of occupations was neither directly possible in some cases, particularly where families had sold their land and assets in the village to buy property in the city, nor desirable because parents aspired for their children to pursue professional careers in cities. 
this aspiration and perceived necessity to make future in the urban space was in alignment with the parental desire for upward social mobility, which is summarized in the statement, the future lies in cities, said one of the parents I spoke with during the interview. Indeed, the investment in children's education was a critical way for parents to realize the intergenerational transfer of social privilege. In educational matters, middle-class parents made a series of decisions that they believed would have a significant impact on their children's future career outcomes. These decisions I have discussed in the paper under the heading, Education Choice as a Strategy for Social Reproduction. To summarize the discussion under this heading, education-related choices for the participant families were mainly sixfold. First, urban education. They wanted urban education as the schools in the city offered more diverse subject choices and students were exposed to a multitude of information that parents believed they wouldn't have had access to if they pursued education in a village. Second, private schools. All parents invariably preferred private schools for their perceived quality of education. Third, English medium. Most participants emphasized that it was important that the school they choose for their children use English for educational purposes. Parents preferred these schools over highly incentivized public institutions, most of which used the vernacular language, which in this case was Hindi, for instructional and assessment purposes. The use of English language carries the mark of elitism in post-colonial India, and some participants associated choosing an English medium school, as they refer to it as, with its socio-historically informed symbolic value. However, the majority of parents in this study valued English for its perceived use in benefiting their children in future competitions for jobs in the labor market. However, the majority of parents in this study valued English for its perceived use in benefiting their children in future competitions for jobs in the labor market. Parents had imagined that their children, once grown up, would be physically mobile within India or outside, and their proficiency in English would equip them to navigate their career path with ease. Fourth aspect of education-related decision-making was learning science subjects. At the secondary educational level, the availability of the science stream was the most critical aspect of both school selection and school switching. The obsession with science subject in the participant families was associated with the aspiration to pursue careers in the fields of engineering and medicine. Almost all parents believed that entry into these fields would provide their children with a privileged position in the occupational hierarchy. Fifth, Academic excellence of school. Most parents I spoke with thought that an ideal school should have infrastructural capacity to provide strong curricular support and to use creative teaching pedagogy. All in all, they should have a demonstrative ability to produce high achieving students. Sixth, extratutorial support. In all participant families, children were receiving tutorial support. Some students who were in class 9, 10, 11, and 12 also attended parallel coaching sessions to improve their chances of success in national entrance examinations for entering engineering and medicine fields. This investment in curricular support was parents' strategy aimed at providing additional educational resources that they perceived were critical to enable their children to excel in high-stake exams, locally known as board exams, as well as to succeed in college entrance assessment tests. 
these aspects of education-related decision-making were similar across all middle-class families that participated in this study. However, differences emerged in how parents engaged with their children's everyday schooling. This difference in the paper is discussed under the heading Mother's Educational Engagement and Distribution of Cultural Capital. The main point of discussion here is that the nature of mother's involvement in their children's everyday schooling in participant families ranged on a continuum from being providers of monetarily purchasable resources, partnering with teachers and children, to proactively orchestrating the overall schooling experiences. Therefore, I suggest three groups of parents with regards to their engagement in the children's education. The providers, the partners, and the proactive agents. The providers. The providers represent those mothers whose primary contribution to their children's education was to supply the materials that was either suggested by teachers or demanded by their children. Most provider mothers had never attended school or had been forced to drop out prematurely due to factors such as family hardship or the prevailing gender norms against female education in their families. In the paper, I have shown how the conversations between teachers and provider parents would usually end prematurely with vague defensive comments from the teachers. In spite of putting enormous effort to make sure that their children had access to quality education, the provider mothers felt distanced from their children's everyday schooling experiences, and on most occasions failed to understand their children's relatively poor and upsetting academic performance. Second group, the partners. These mothers had completed their schooling and some of them were college graduates. These mothers took on the role of creating a home environment for their children that was conducive to learning and that complemented school activities. The organization of a space to foster learning practices tended to be common among partner families. Parents in this group would not only meet the logistical demands made by teachers and their children, but also purchase additional teaching and learning aids and cater to their children's nutrition needs in an organized manner. Partner mothers also mobilized their economic capital to provide extra educational resources for their children and activated their social connections to source valuable teaching and learning material. Along with supporting their children's needs in different ways, the partner parents also sacrifice their social life for their perceived need to maintain their physical presence around their children. Despite being heavily involved in their children's education, partner parents shared a strong sense of guilt for their inability to assist their children academically. Third group, the proactive agents. So on the other side of the continuum of parental engagement were the highly educated mothers with at least a master's degree orchestrated their children's schooling experience by helping them with their homework, participating actively in everyday curricular activities, and at times monitoring their learning progress through self-scheduled home tests. As an active agent, mothers in this category productively mobilize their economic, social, and cultural capital to provide their children with educational advantages. So these were the major findings. So what this paper does is to attempt to capture the complexity underlying the relationship between class privilege and educational advantage. By focusing on an economic fraction of the contemporary Indian middle class and drawing on Bourdieu's work, 
It shows that social class is a construction of relative positions that agents occupy in a field. Middle class in many ways is a multi-positional category in dynamic and evolving social space. And viewing the middle class as such helps to capture the nuances of parental investment in their children's education, especially in the Indian context. The participant families had many similar experiences that placed them closely with one another in the social space. For example, they used their economic and social capital to move spatially and to adapt their occupation to suit the fabric of the contemporary urban middle class. These socio-spatial transformations also informed parents' aspirations for their children's education and career trajectories. For example, parents' desire for children to enter the fields of engineering, medicine, and other professions are premised on their belief that pursuing careers in these lines of work will position their children in the middle of the newly formulated structure of occupational hierarchy. These aspirations that are directed at reproducing social advantage via education within a constantly restructuring social space guided the educational decisions that parents and participant families made. These decisions, the selection of a private school that uses English for educational purposes, having well-equipped classrooms, plenty of subject choices, and stress on academic achievement, are not merely educational-related choices. They are strategies for achieving academic distinction and acquiring valued educational resources. Most of these decisions are aimed at mobilizing social connections and economic resources to gain cultural capital in both embodied and institutionalized forms to provide children with competitive advantages later in their lives. Therefore, social and economic forms of capital are necessary for middle-class families to accumulate valuable educational resources. However, the extent to which these strategies help with realizing the desired education advantage depends on the distribution of parents' cultural capital. For example, in the paper, I show differentials in the management and the utilization of available resources. While the mothers with higher academic qualifications usually proactively engage in or partner with teachers in shaping their children's schooling experiences and consequently strengthening the homeschool relationship, those who do not possess this embodied and institutionalized form of cultural capital fail to translate the assembled educational resources into advantage, despite having common goals and having adopted similar educational strategies. This study has implications for policy and future studies in the field. Regarding policy, in many ways, this study offers a sharp critique of the choice narrative in the education sector. Indeed, the marketization and privatization of education have provided middle-class parents with choices, and the lack of these choices places the economically weaker sections of the social class in a relatively disadvantaged position. However, the paper reveals the facade behind the optimistic views associated with the school choice by showing that the availability of choice does not guarantee educational privilege even within middle-class families. Socioeconomic capability may bring together valuable resources, but differential distribution and composition of other forms of resources or capital, which are accumulated variously throughout the lives of the members of social groups, result in the disparate utilization of accrued resources. With regards to the field of research, the article contributes to the scholarship of education practices and processes in India. 
previous studies have provided sufficient evidence for middle class diversity. This paper illustrates that the advantages realized in the form of children's education that members of just one economic fraction of this group seem to have at their disposal can be quite diverse and unequal. This occurs due to the variety of ways in which the agents, in this case parents, reach the middle position in the class hierarchy. Since the heterogeneity produced through differential life trajectories exists relationally across and within different sections of social groups, educational privilege cannot be categorized neatly between middle and working classes in the Indian context. Hence, instead of producing binary narratives of social class to illustrate educational advantage, perhaps analyzing relative privilege and disadvantage in increasingly heterogeneous social groups would allow for capturing the complexity underlying the processes of social reproduction in evolving social fields more comprehensively.